Yeah, thank you to everyone who showed up to this uh, live taping of my sermon podcast. <laughs> my studio audience. More people are going to listen to this on the podcast than are here tonight. What'd you say? Yeah, my, my, this is the exclusive Patreon uh, experience, fan experience. Oh, man. What'd you say? Yeah, if you like what you hear, you know, just go ahead and smash that like button. And subscribe. Yeah, make sure you turn on notifications. Seriously, though, welcome. Um, doesn't matter how many people are here. If just, uh, if just the chairs were here, I think we could have an anointed time in the Word of God. Um, get your Bibles out. We're going to just have a, spend some time in First Peter. We have a week to do it. We have a week in this book, and uh, it's, you know, it's impossible to get through in a week. So we're going to just go as fast as we can. Uh, my goal is to really just give an overview and whet our appetites for the, uh, the main thoughts that are being communicated through this book. Uh, let's, let's pray over the reading of the Word. Father, we ask that you would bless uh, our time in the Word tonight, that it would be anointed, that we could truly hear, that the Word um, would be implanted, as James says, would, would truly be implanted in our hearts, and that it would cause us to uh, become more like you, Jesus. Transform us as we come into contact with you and your word. Holy Spirit, be here and uh, do a work tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so what I want to do is spend a little bit of time unpacking the first two verses because with packed into these incredible verses, I think our most of the major themes of the book, believe it or not. And then I want to list um, just several, it's not exhaustive, but what, what jumps out to me as the primary uh, ideas in this book. And then I want to just maybe offer some application for 21st century readers of this book, particularly us and here and now. How, what can we, what should we take away from this book? How should we respond in obedience and in faith? what Peter was writing to the church. All right, so Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is a remarkable opening, and so we need to take it real slow. The first, uh, the first really dense statement here is elect exiles of the dispersion. Okay, elect is a, is a very significant word in particularly Israelite history, but also for, for the, in the New Testament, it's used quite a, quite a bit. But for first century Jews... The word elect, which also just means chosen, 
would have huge implications, okay? The elect people of God, the election of Israel, is a major theme of the Old Testament, all right? So the people of God knew themselves as the chosen ones, okay? Once you get on into the prophets, the concept of what it means to be the chosen ones of God begins to uh, clarify a little more. And then we start to see that there's this figure known as the, the Messiah, or the, and he, it's the chosen one. And this idea starts to come to the surface in the prophets. But before then, right, God entered into covenant with Abraham. He chose Abraham. And then he chose, um, he chose to be faithful to Abraham's family. And when he brought his people out of Egypt, he said, you are going to be my chosen people. All right. So God's covenants with Israel all through the Old Testament were a reiteration of their chosenness. Right? God entering into relationship with his people was his choice. We talked a little bit about the choice of Israel. God refers to it in uh, when we talked about Malachi, right? He says, "How they say, how have I how have you loved us?" And he says, "Well, I chose you." All right, so God's choice in the election of Israel meant that they were his special people. Now, they didn't really understand what it meant to be God's chosen people. Right? And there were some misconceptions uh, about what it meant. But Paul clarifies for us in Romans that they were chosen because God chose them. They weren't chosen because there was something special about them. They were chosen because God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take you and I'm going to make you into a great nation. All right? So the elect people of God, it was a, it, this was a national identity word for the people of God. So Peter says to the elect, the chosen people of God, exiles. There's another big Old Testament word. We just talked about the return from exile. Um, but apparently there was a sense in which the people of God still saw themselves in some sort of exile. Right? And this exile is not being cast out of Jerusalem, although they, he's writing to people who were not physically in Jerusalem. This exile has been redefined just like everything else had been redefined, had been, the, the lines had been redrawn around Jesus. Right? And what it meant to be part of the people of God, as this book will tell us, as this letter really tells us, is to be the people of Messiah, people in Messiah. So elect means the chosen, the covenant people of God. Uh, it also means chosen for a purpose. And that was, that purpose was something that um, they didn't fully understand until Jesus revealed it fully, okay? That's something that Peter mentions here, that the, the purpose for which they were chosen, that was known by God before the foundation of the world, but has been revealed, has been manifested in these last days by Jesus, his son, okay? So what happened when Jesus revealed 
the purposes of God is he, he revealed what it meant to be chosen. Right? God twice over Jesus in his ministry said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is what I've been looking for all along. This is my chosen one in whom is my delight. Okay? Exiles, to be exile or to be a sojourner is another word you could use, means that you're in a foreign territory. You're not home. You're, You're away from home. And so here, Peter's talking to the people of God who are in exile. But they're not the people of God in exile like we've been studying. Right? They are the chosen people of God. He means something different by that. And they are in exile, and he means something different by that. What he means here is that they are in the world. The world isn't fully submitted to God yet. Right? I mean, Jesus has done a work on the cross. Jesus has changed the course of human history. But you look around, and the world is largely opposed to God. And here we are living in the world. And so, but we're not at home here. We're not at home amongst the world system. So he's talking to not just Jewish believers. He's talking to all people, many of whom were probably Gentiles. And he's saying, you are elect. You're chosen, and you're also in exile. So he's identifying anyone who's in Jesus as part of the people of God. And then in the, in the dispersion. So they're all over the place. All right? So the elect exiles in the dispersion, this is who the letter is to. That's a pretty broad audience. He narrows it down to a few cities in, in uh, Asia Minor, in Turkey. <laughs> All right, so according to the foreknowledge of God, what's, what, is, what does that mean, according to? It's elect according to the foreknowledge of God, okay? So it's the election that's according to the foreknowledge of God. So you are the, he says, y'all are the chosen people of God, and you're living in exile, scattered everywhere. This was all according to God's plan. The foreknowledge of God, the Father, which is an important name for God in this letter. God's plan has been clear from the beginning. To have sons like Jesus. To have sons like Jesus. That's why he created Adam. He wanted a son like Jesus. (laughs) That's why he created him. So... When it says that we are chosen in him, it means that Jesus is the pattern. In the sanctification of the Spirit. So God has chosen from the beginning that he wants a family that resembles his, the, the relationship that he shares with his son Jesus. That's what he said, let's make man in our image. We want more of this. So before God even brought the world into existence, he said, this is what it should be. This life that I share with my son. That's the foreknowledge of God the Father. In the sanctification of the Spirit, sanctification 
Um, oh, the other thing that God determined from before the foundation of the world was that his son should also die for the sins of humanity. Okay, that's part of the election. That's the part of the election that Israel didn't quite understand, but that the Messiah, the suffering servant, came to fully reveal. I've chosen you for a purpose, and that purpose is to help redeem the world back to me, to redeem my fallen children back to me. And the only way to do that is for you to die. So Israel never quite understood that, that they were supposed to die. They were supposed to be, says a royal priesthood, right? And Jesus embodies this in so many beautiful ways, to be the place where people come and have their sins dealt with so that they can be with God. Israel was supposed to be a royal priesthood. That's what the church is now, right? They were all supposed to be a royal part of a priesthood on behalf of mankind where people could come and learn who God was, have their sins forgiven, have their sins dealt with, and be reunited with God. That was the purpose for which Israel was elected, right? They got a little object lesson in this kind of election within their own nation by God's choosing of Levi. He said, I want, to, I want one tribe to have a unique purpose among you all, and that's going to be to operate all of the priestly duties so that you see that there's one section devoted to handling all this stuff, this, this business of coming back into the presence of God through sacrifice. In the sanctification of the Spirit. So, you see here, there's God the Father, there's the Spirit, and there's Jesus, right? All, all three members of, of the Godhead. The Spirit is the one who operates in our lives to make us into the people of God. Sanctification means basically the holification, <laughs> right? To sanctify, it means to make holy, to set apart, but also to purify, Okay, those are two aspects of holiness that the people of God were to embody. Holiness and set-apartness. Set-apartness for what? For the purpose of... The, the, for the purpose that God chose them for. So, the Spirit has worked now. The sanctification of the Spirit. It's not, it's not through uh, possessing Torah. It's not through having the temple. It's by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one that sets the people of God apart from the rest of the world. Does that make sense? It was Jewish identity, temple, the boundaries of the land, the courts of the tabernacle, and the, having, having the law. These were all things that marked people out, that sanctified them as the people of God. Now it's the Holy Spirit that does this work, that marks people out brings them together, and, and identifies the nation of God. In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. In the, in the Greek, it just says, for obedience and sprinkling in Jesus Christ. Obedience and sprinkling. A sprinkling in his blood. So what is that talking about? We'll go to Exodus chapter 19.
This is where uh, God has brought them out of Egypt. And this is where he establishes his covenant and where he gives them the law. One of the, one of the major parts of uh, their identity as the people of God. Verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, but you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a sanctified nation, a nation that's set apart for a purpose. Now go to Exodus 24. This is where this covenant, so that's the, the, the terms of the covenant, and this is where the covenant is confirmed. You go to verse 7. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient to the law. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what's he saying? You're chosen because God had this plan in mind for what his, for what his people should be. And the Spirit has made this now possible. And it's, it's so that the people can be obedient and sprinkled, just like under the Old Covenant. But now what is it? For obedience to Jesus Christ, to Jesus the Messiah. Not obedience anymore to the book of the covenant, even though Jesus embodied it. And everything in the covenant is embodied in Jesus. But it's for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling of the blood, not of a lamb or a bull or a goat, but of the blood of Jesus. Right? So, so what has this introduction told us? You are 100% fully the covenant people of God. In every sense that the people of God were his people in the Old Testament, you are that now in Jesus by the Holy Spirit. That makes sense? Do you see what he has said here just in this opening? You can, you can glaze over that. But he has said something amazing. That those who are in Christ, which is how he closes the letter, that's who he's writing to, peace to all of you who are in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are 100% the people of God. You are the covenant people of God. You are the elect people of God. You are the kind of people that he has wanted since the beginning. Does that make sense? So this is an amazing thing. Peter is writing to the people of God, which is to say everyone who's in Christ is the people of God. So there's not like this, all right, well, he did this kind of Israel thing for a while. Now he's doing something new in Jesus. No, in Jesus, what Peter is saying, God is now doing, to an even greater extent, what he was always doing, what he was trying to do, what he was moving toward in the nation of Israel. All right, this is what, this is an amazing, this is something that will change the way that you read Scripture. It's what Paul said. He said, Christ is the end of the law. 
for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that we shut that down and we start over. It means that this is where all of this was heading. Right? Having a temple, having a great temple, having the best temple that's ever been, that doesn't even compare to what it means to be in Jesus. He is the temple. Having the law, having perfect understanding of the law, having such clarity, having great teachers of the law, being the most devoted follower of the law is nothing in comparison to being in Jesus because all of that was pointing to him. All right, so this is a major thing that he said here about Jesus, particularly as it concerns the identity of the people of God. Who is the people of God? Those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ. Obedience and sprinkling, obedience to Jesus and sprinkling by the blood of Jesus. Right? He's the way that we become part of the people of God, but he's also the one that we obey as the people of God. So, 1 Peter is a book to the people of God in Christ wherever and whenever they may find themselves. They're scattered around. And so surely there were some specific kinds of persecution and suffering happening that that he must have been referring to. Um, It's not explicit here, you know, what exactly was going on. Was it a a governmental uh, oppression? You know, was it just person to person? But there there were trials happening. There were sufferings happening. Uh, but the exact, the exact situations, I don't think are really the emphasis of the letter, all right? Um, in fact, I think a primary emphasis of this letter is to underscore the fact that the purposes of God and the identity of his people, okay, so what God's doing and who his people are, those things are based on truths that transcend current circumstances, The purposes of God transcend current circumstances. Whether it was Nero or Trajan or Domitian or whatever other emperor was going on, what was doing his thing, oppressing Christians, or however it was happening, Peter's saying that doesn't change the purpose of God at all. And it also doesn't diminish the identity of the people of God in any way. So, a primary emphasis of the letter is to underscore the fact that the purposes of God and the identity of his people are based on truths that transcend current circumstances and can therefore be trusted and obeyed regardless of any apparent outcome. Right? The purposes of God and being his people, his commands for his people... You can trust that, you can obey that, and it has nothing to do with what's going on around you. You don't need to let that affect you in any way. You can trust God, you can obey him, you can be the people that you're called to be whenever, wherever you are. No matter what it looks like, (laughs) no matter what the outcomes are. So regardless of any apparent outcome, including and especially in the face of suffering. You're starting to set, it's gotten all the way to suffering. Well, let me tell you something. 
if you understood the purposes of God, you would understand that actually when his people begin to suffer unjustly, that's when the, the full purpose of God begins to be revealed in the deepest way possible. All right, I'm getting a little ahead of myself. All right, so here are the key points of this book. I think I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. A holy number. <laughs> number one. God is our Father, and Jesus is the Lord. God is our Father, and Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is and has always been the fulfillment of God's plan for humanity. He both sums up everything in the Old Covenant, uh, everything that the Old Covenant and all the prophets were pointing to. He mentions that in in chapter 1. So he sums all of that up. He fulfills it all. But then he also is now the blueprint for everything to follow under the new covenant, right? He's the fulfillment of the old, and he is the pattern for the new, the blueprint, okay? There are, just like in, in Exodus, there all those detailed pattern for the tabernacle. All those details are Jesus now. And in all the different details of our life, we look to Jesus as the blueprint, right? We have the blueprint. So for each of these, I'm just going to read a few verses through the, scattered through the book. Uh, verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 2. Um, oh, we just read that. So everything is for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Uh, verse 20 of chapter 1. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. God the Father raised him from the dead and gave Jesus glory. God has said, this is it. This is the one. Chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen, there's that word again, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a royal priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We offer sacrifices to God. We come to God through Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. God has given Jesus authority. God has made Jesus the Lord of all the earth. Chapter 4, verse 11. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So we can't miss. I mean, that might be the most important truth of this book. 
that God as Father, God as Creator, has made Jesus the Lord. And it is through Jesus, His Son, that we come back into His presence. It's through Jesus, His Son, that we receive life, that we receive, that we participate in resurrection. It's through Jesus and in Jesus that we live and we move and we have our being. All right? So the second point comes right out of that, and these just kind of follow from each other. Jesus is the pattern. Jesus is the pattern. The people of God, the church, is to live in imitation of Jesus no matter what happens as a result. Okay? So God has said, this is it. The people of God say, he is it. We live as him. We obey him. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in an example. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Christ did it. Do the same thing. Number three. The church is the people of God in every sense that the Old Testament pointed to. The church is the people of God in every sense that the Old Testament pointed to. Right? Peter, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion. You're the chosen people of God. Verse 12, chapter 1. It was revealed to them, that's the prophets. Verse 11. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. These are things that were hidden. Right? This is why the big argument in the church was, do we make Christians become Jews? Paul says, what would that do? That would be regressive. God has done everything that Jewishness was pointing to in Jesus. And now you're all, Jew and Gentile, part of the people of God. He's redefined what it means to be the people of God. You are, he says, uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In other words, you are the covenant people of God in the Exodus 19 sense. As clearly as that was God's covenant with his people, so now God has a covenant with us through Jesus, and we are his covenant people. All right, number four. The people of God are holy. 
The people of God are holy. At the core of what it means to imitate Jesus is to be holy. And what that means, I think I already mentioned that, is set apart from the, the futile ways of the world. It talks about what the Gentiles do and their, the futility of their minds. And it talks about... Um, Oh, what does it talk about? Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. It talks about giving up all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy and slander. Being sanctified being pulled out of, and really that's what, the, that's what salvation is, right? Salvation isn't just a pronouncement that, all right, now you will go to heaven if you die tonight. Salvation means you've been brought out of Egypt. That's what salvation is. <laughs> that's what the whole story of salvation, you've been delivered from the power of sin. You've been brought out. And that implies that now you're different and now you live different. So the people of God are holy. They are truly saved, delivered from the ways of the world. But holiness also means holy given to the purposes of God. It's a one purpose. We are a one purpose people, right? In, a, in an operating room, there are instruments that you don't, you don't use a scalpel to cut your steak. Right? And go back and forth between the two. Right? That thing is there for a singular purpose. It's holy. For the purpose of being used in surgery. The people of God are holy for the purpose of bringing salvation into the earth. All right? So, set apart, but set to a purpose. The, both of those aspects of holiness are important in this book. Okay, because if you just see holiness as don't do anything wrong, then you miss the point of holiness in the kingdom of God as part of the people of God. Yeah, don't do anything wrong. That's one thing. But what are you doing now instead? What is the purpose to which you have been set apart? So the people of God are holy. A um, few verses here. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Chapter 2, verse 1. Put away all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Again, in, in verse 5, you are a holy priesthood. Priests had a purpose. They had a function. Right? They didn't operate like the rest of the nation. They didn't even really own property. They didn't have an income in the way that everyone else did. Everything about their lives was oriented around the purpose for which they were consecrated. That's how we live. As the people of God. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God 
Verse 11. Beloved, of this is chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. There's a lot. I mean, holiness is a huge part of this book. But the the big point is that that holiness is what marks the people of God. It sets them apart from the world, but it also sets them to the purpose for which they've been brought out of the world. Number five. God's people love each other and give themselves to one another. It's a huge, huge theme in this book. Chapter 1, verse 22. A lot of these we've read multiple times. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. This is amongst the people of God. You know, it talks a lot about how we're to relate to the world, but it also talks quite a bit about how we're to relate to one another. And this is how we're to relate to one another. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart and a humble mind. Chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. God's given you things. Give it to the people of God. Give yourself. Give all of your gifts that God has given you. You pour those out for the people of God. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Chapter 5, verse 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. All right, so God's people love each other and give themselves to each other. Number six, and this is probably, you know, if we were to have a show of hands, this is probably one of the themes that that most people would, would point out. Trials will come. Trials will come. So accompanying the kind of life that the people of God live, holy, set apart from the world, given to a single purpose, loving one another, associated with that kind of life, in whatever context we find ourselves in, are trials. And those range. You know, we, if you were to look at, the, try and identify what are the trials that he's referring to, it's a range in this book. And I, I think that's, that's purposeful. All right. They range from anything from just negative perception by those in your life um, to even suffering and physical harm. And it also ranges from, you know, trials 
at the hands of those in our immediate social context, all the way to trials that maybe originate with the emperor himself. Does that make sense? I think the point is that it's various trials, anything, anything and everything, however severe, however minor. There's going to be, there's going to be trials. Wherever you are, whenever you are, trials will come. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. And what these trials do is they come and they grieve us. That means that they give us pain of, uh, they, uh, it, it's really pain, pain in our minds. <laughs> we, 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 we're perplexed. What, man, what is this? These trials are perplexing to us. Uh, in verse in chapter two, verse twenty, it says, "This is a gracious, uh, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called." Chapter three, verse fourteen: Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised when the fiery trial at the fiery trial, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, so that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Okay, so trials will come, pretty much guaranteed. It talks about being maligned. It talks about being um, probably even physically harmed. And it talks about just those who, you know, friends in your local town, uh, associates. But it also talks about governors, emperors, um, how we're to relate to them too. And through any of those people, trials, trials may come. It also may come from your own household, right? A wife with an unbelieving husband who's going through a trial. A servant with a master who might be overbearing has a trial on their hands, All right? Wherever you are, trials can come at any moment. Now, obviously, we need to recognize that in America, we, um, we don't suffer in the ways that many other believers do on account of our faith, right? So that, that unique kind of persecution and even martyrdom, um, praise the Lord, is not a threat to us. That's not to say that there aren't anti-Christian uh, forces at work in America, but we don't physically suffer for our faith, um, we may miss out on a promotion here or there. That might be the worst of it uh, at this point. That's not to say anything about the coming years. Who knows where we're headed? Um, but I think it's also good and important to, when we come and, and, and read things like this, that we also remember that the whole world and throughout Christian history hasn't really experienced faith 
and living in a, in a nation like we, like we do in America. We're sort of in Disney World. Um, and we need to remember that for all of Christian history, and even now, there are Christians that are being violently persecuted because they're Christians and because they proclaim the name of Jesus. So I think always we need to stop and remember where we fit in, in church history. We are very privileged and very blessed. I mean, thanks be to God. But we do need to recognize when we read a letter like this, we have brothers and sisters who are undergoing horrific suffering for the name of Jesus. So something to balance out. The, I do think that trials come to everyone, regardless of where they are. And I think we can take that away from this book, from this letter. Trials come to everyone. If you desire to live a Christ-like life, to live a holy life, you will encounter various trials in some form. Um, but we also need to recognize that that, that explicit form of persecution isn't really ours, uh, but we should stand in solidarity with those for whom it is. Um, all right, number seven. So number six was trials will come. Number seven is this is not a bad thing. Trials are not a bad thing. And in fact, they give us an opportunity to respond in a way that really proclaims the glory of God in a uniquely powerful way. So trials are not a bad thing. The response to these trials is the important thing to consider. How do you respond to trial? Any kind of trial. In a lot of ways, we're at a disadvantage as Americans. Because when our faith, when we do start to run up against a legitimate trial, and I don't just mean like my kids are sick and I'm having a hard day. I mean opposition because you proclaim the name of Jesus. When you do begin to run up against that, most often you can just avoid it. Oh, I'm not going to talk to them again. Or maybe I'll just shut up about that. We have the option of privacy, of freedom of religion. And if we want to just exercise our religion and freedom, we can choose to do so. And we can separate ourselves from people that would oppose who we are or speak evil of us or call us hypocrites or anything that they want to call us. We can avoid them. I'm saying, as Americans, we do ourselves a disservice if we do that. Because, number one, we're missing out on the opportunity for our faith to be tested and purified. Number two, we're missing out on an opportunity to be Jesus to these people. Does that make sense? So I don't mean you should go looking for persecution. But if persecution finds its way... I'm not going to use that word, persecution. If opposition finds its way into your life, you should probably thank God. If he's telling people who are going to be physically harmed to rejoice when trials come their way, what would he tell us about the little tiny ways in which they come into our life? Why would you run away from it? <laughs> he says, 
The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So trials should be met. In whatever form they come into our lives, trials should be met with trust and dependence on God. Not escape or avoid or bemoan the situation. It says even Jesus, in the face of suffering, in the face of when he was reviled, he didn't say anything in return. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. (laughs) Why are you running away from blessing? Because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 4.19 says, Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. When a trial comes into your life on account of your desire to live a holy life and your desire to make known who Jesus is to the world around you, when a trial comes, the correct response is to say, I belong to you, Lord. And I'm going to continue to reflect who you are. That's it. You entrust your soul. All right. Come what may. My soul is entrusted to God. It's given to God for safekeeping. And I can continue to do good without any threat, without any fear of what's going to happen. Okay. So trust and dependence on God. And also grace and mercy towards those through whom the trials come. That's the most important. There's, there's an opposition to God. This is an opportunity for me to be the people of God, the chosen person of God, who's going to be different, and who instead of getting even, is going to humble himself, humble herself before this person, and let them do their worst, because... That's what Jesus did for us. He came and he let sin, our sin, he let it do its worst. And that is what triumphed over sin. That's what brought salvation into the earth. That's who we are if we're the sons of God. That's who we are in Jesus. God chose him from before the foundation of the world. Yes, I love life with my son. Also what I love about my son is that he will give his life to someone who doesn't deserve it. You're the chosen people of God. You're the chosen people of God because you're going to be called to give your life to people who don't deserve it. That's what it means to be the people of God. That's what was hidden for ages but now has been manifested by the coming of Jesus. That God is about giving himself, (laughs) sacrificing himself for undeserving people. And that's what brings salvation into the world. Salvation doesn't happen when we finally get the walls built and we get the bubble created. And now we can, inside this bubble, do everything right. That's not what brought salvation into the world. Salvation was brought into the world when Jesus left heaven Came, went out into a sinful place and let that sinful place wreak all of its 
hurt and pain and murder and lust, all of it on him, it says. Let me find it. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. God will judge. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Whoa. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. Straight from Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. But this is the thing. This is what the people of God do. They're not chosen because Jesus said, all right, I died for these people who deserve it. And now, if you deserved it, now you can be part of the people of God. No, the whole point was that he died for people who didn't deserve it. And that's always what it's meant to be a son of God, to be willing to die for people who don't deserve it. Oh, man, that's how the blessing of God comes to all nations. All right, so this is a really, this is an amazing book. It really gets at the heart of the purposes of God, Old Testament, New Testament, all of it. So the people of God are dispersed everywhere to this day. I mean, Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, <laughs> right? There's, you're the light of the world. There are pockets, there are little candlesticks, lampstands here, there, all over this dark world. And it's, it's growing. You are the salt of the earth. And so little pockets of the people of God find themselves coexisting within the city of man. And the key, what God is looking for, is for people to build godly communities in whatever context they find themselves in. To build godly communities. He wants to incorporate the people of God into the work that Jesus did. Jesus started doing the work of salvation. We are continuing to do the work of salvation. Okay? We, continue, we are his body in the earth. So the gospel doesn't create a bubble for us to live in. The gospel says, come join Jesus in the work of salvation. Be saved yourself and join him in the work of salvation. He is rest- he's making all things new. He is restoring the earth. And we are participating with him. It's a much bigger project than getting saved. There's a lot of work to do. There is a kingdom to build. And that's what he brings us into. So we don't sit around and hope for God to finally come and deliver us from our exile. Take us to heaven where we belong. He already delivered us from exile. We've been freed. He says, you are free. Live as people who are free. But don't use your freedom as an opportunity for evil. Don't use your freedom to to please yourself. Use that status as the the free people of God to, to do what Jesus did. Freely came into the earth and gave himself away. Jesus was free. Totally free. And what he chose to do with his freedom was lay his life down. So we use our freedom 
to face the world head on. And we testify to who Jesus is. But we do it with grace. And we do it because people ask us, man, why are you so hopeful? How in the world can you not react uh, when that person is, is uh, you know, degrades what you're doing and speaks evil of you? So we use our freedom to face the world head on. We testify with and without words to who he is. We remain pure. And to the extent that our context may dictate, we suffer, we serve, we show hospitality to the world. To be tangible examples of Jesus' life. Okay, so we don't just tell people what Jesus is like. We don't just go around and say, well, here are the four points of the gospel. It's much bigger than that. We live the life of Jesus. What's Jesus like? He's like us. We love each other. We pure heart. We give ourselves to each other. We don't revile each other. We don't get back at each other. That's Jesus. And it's not, we can't just do that on our own power, but we live the life of Jesus. And as they encounter, as the world encounters holy communities who are doing this and who exalt Jesus and who follow him, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, they come into contact with Jesus. And we don't have to preach Jesus and say, believe these words. We can live Jesus and say, come live with us. (laughs) Come into his life. So that's, that's what this letter says to us. That we build a godly community and we live in this city in a way that causes people to wonder, how, how do they do that? How are they so hopeful? And we are then ready to say, well, let me tell you why. We're ready to give a reason to those who ask for the hope that is in us. But more than anything, we're to maintain a cross-shaped posture toward the world. We don't march out with Holy Ghost machine guns. Yeah, believe or perish. We don't, you know, there's a, there's a picture of building the kingdom that really looks an awful lot like a worldly <laughs> military conquest. And that's not at all what Jesus said to do. That's not what he did. Now, one day he's coming back and he is coming with his armies and they're going to clean house, right? But that's not, that's not our job. Our job is to live as Jesus lived, to, to offer people the opportunity to repent, to say, your sin really hurts the people in your life. It really hurts God. But you know what? God can take it and God forgives you and God wants you to repent and stop doing those things and come into his kingdom and live in this way. And you go and do that for someone else. So to truly bless the nations, we go out and we take up our cross in whatever form it presents itself. And if we encounter suffering, and this is the real, the paradox of, of the letter, if we encounter suffering, if it gets really bad, as a lot of American evangelicals for years and years have been saying, it's going to get really bad. It's going to get really bad. 
guess what? The worse it gets, the more it fuels the process of the purposes of God being accomplished. Right? The church historically has always experienced the most, the most growth and the most real growth, genuine growth, in the face of persecution. So what do we want to do? Do we want to sit around in lukewarm, unopposed Christianity? Or do we want to get out and allow whatever suffering presents itself, allow that to test our faith, to make it genuine so that we can show people who Jesus really is? And let the world do its worst because we've entrusted our souls to a faithful creator while we go do good, right? Suffering actually fuels the process. Now, I don't want to suffer. I don't want, I don't want to be persecuted. I don't think anyone would choose that. But I'm not scared of suffering or persecution. If what this letter says is true, which I believe it is, if that happens, it's cause for rejoicing. And if it happens, it fuels the growth of the, of the knowledge and the glory of God. Amen? All right. Man, it is just way too hard to do a, a whole book in one night. What are we doing? All right. We're going to take communion. Um, so let's just pray. And then we're small enough. I think we can just uh, come up and get a cup with some juice and, and uh, go pray with someone. And we can thank God that he has made us uh, his covenant people.